0: Hello, and welcome to the Business of Information Security Podcast with me, Gareth Becker. In this podcast, we chat to senior cybersecurity executives from a range of industries about their passions, experiences, and challenges. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive straight into today's episode. And welcome to the Business of Infosec Podcast. Today, we're entering the quantum world. Well, uh, okay, perhaps not, but we are going to talk about the effect of quantum computing on the world of cybersecurity and what cybersecurity leaders should be doing today to prepare. To enlighten us, I have a man who literally wrote the book on the subject, Raj Badwa. Raj is an award-winning technology executive with more than 26 years of professional experience in the management and delivery of cybersecurity and identity and access management services. Previously, he held a top-secret clearance from the U.S. Department of Defense. This year, he was named as one of Corinium's top 100 CISOs globally and also awarded the 2021 Leadership Award by the Global Leadership Institute. Today, he is a Senior Vice President and CISO at the investment firm Voya Financial. And uh, Raj has, in fact, written two books on cybersecurity, The CISO's Next Frontier, AI, post-quantum cryptography and advanced security paradigms, and the CISO's Transformation, Security Leadership in a High-Threat Landscape. Welcome to the podcast, Raj.
1: Hi, Gareth. Happy to be here.
0: Great. Well, that's great. it's great to have you on. I'm really lo- looking forward to this conversation. So I wanted to start by asking you about what inspired you to write about cybersecurity. Uh, you've got two cybersecurity books out now. Um, so, why do you think these topics are so relevant now,
1: Garrett? That is a great question, and you know, I've had a long time in the cybersecurity world, right? As a cybersecurity engineer, as a cybersecurity architect, having worked in cybersecurity engineering and operations for a very long time, I feel that all that I have learned over these years needs to be shared with uh, the cybersecurity community, with the IT community, and with the in general business community. Uh, I feel that I am all in on cybersecurity. I believe in leading from the front and being hands-on, but also feel that the need to create a shared defense is on all of us for our industry and for our nation. This is also evident from the 14 security patterns that have been granted to me over the years, the many security certifications that I still carry, and the various articles I have written over the years. Some of the topics that I talk about in the book uh, and, and through other various other channels are, for example, the use of AI in cybersecurity, quantum computing attacks, and the use of post quantum cryptography to mitigate those threats, right? How to securely work from home given the pandemic induced remote work paradigm, advanced malware, for example, polymorphic or metamorphic malware, notably ransomware, or third party supply chain attacks, notably solar winds or other APT attacks, APT stands for advanced persistent threat. These topics are very relevant in the high threat environment that we all operate in due to the exist- existential threat to our very existence from sophisticated cyber attackers and malicious entities, right? We've all learned the fact that cybersecurity is everyone's responsibility. Everyone must say something when they see something, or even better yet, they must do something when they see something so um, any employee uh, that notices anomalous or malicious activity or behavior must first determine uh, whether it is it constitutes an actual security threat and if it does then they must obviously act by notifying the security team and stay engaged till the set threat has been eliminated lastly we've also learned that no one has complete immunity against these advanced cyber attacks and thus we must remain ever vigilant and perform continuous assessment and improvement of our cyber security controls and defense capabilities this is generally done in the industry these days by implementing zero trust based security controls using the lens of least privilege
0: yeah and i think that point about uh, the need to when you if you see something say something you know that, and even in the title of your book, we, we are living in a high-threat landscape, and, and that really brings that security leadership into play. And I think that's, you know, it's so important for CSO such as yourself to be, you know, leading from the front, as you said, uh, in these times. So primarily, this conversation is focused on uh, your book, which I, I believe is the one which is either has either just been released or, or is about to be released. And that is uh, the CISO's next frontier, AI post-quantum cryptography and advanced security paradigms. Now, you hear a lot in popular culture about uh, quantum technology, quantum mechanics. And, you know, there's a a famous quote from Richard Feynman in, in 1965, which said, I think I can safely say that nobody understands quantum mechanics. Now, uh, so I wanted to start by asking you a bit about what, you know, what is quantum uh, in relation to cybersecurity? Uh, what's it being used for? What's the kind of relationship between quantum mechanics, quantum computing, and quantum cryptography?
1: Yes, yeah, so to answer this question, I'm going to take a step back, right? And first talk about classical computing. And then I'll talk about quantum mechanics, quantum computing, and quantum encryption. So in classical computing, which is the computing, you know, that we use today, the state of a conventional computer can be described by the sequence of two state bits, which is basically zero or one, right? So, or we can say that these are the binary configurations of the individual transistors within the CPU or the storage device that we use, right? Like for example, in our laptops in our mobile devices. So for example, a two-bit register at any given time within a CPU can store any one of the two raised to two binary states, which is basically 00011011. So if you have, you know, a register uh, with eight binary states, then it'll be two raised to eight. So if you have N registers, there's going to be at any given instance, two raised to N possible binary states at any given time. Right? So that's how a conventional computer basically works. It's basically a group of transistors that remember the state, and based on the large number of transistors that are in our chip, we get the computing power. So that's today, that's the conventional computer. Now let's talk about quantum. In quantum computing, the two state bit of each transistor in a conventional computer is replaced by an entity called the qubit, also known as the quantum bit which, by the way, also has two states, right? And it is basically the physical carrier of the quantum information. So although the subatomic particles that could be used, for example, the most basic particle like electron, uh, you know, uh, can be used to explain this. uh, You know, uh, so for example, the electron can serve as a qubit with its intrinsic angular momentum or as we call it a spin, you know, it could be like a half spin up or a spin down. So and that can be used to measure the state zero or one of a qubit, just like we have the state zero and one of a transistor. So in addition to comply with the quantum law of superposition, an ele- electron can simultaneously exhibit both the spin up and the spin down right? And that is the unique twist or the curve to quantum computing. So a quantum computing system basically that comprises of two qubits would have similarly two raised to two, four states. Just like a two raised to two, four states of a given transistor in a conventional computer. So again, even in a quantum computer with n qubits, it can have two raised to n states simultaneously. So the question people will ask is, okay, well then what's the difference, right? Both the computers, the conventional quantum will have two raised to n states. The difference is that in these computing models, while there is an n bit registered in a conventional computer, it can only store one of the n binary configurations at any given time. But in a quantum computer can have uh, for example, an n-bit quantum register can store all of the n states simultaneously, right? So, so and that is what gives the immense computing power to a quantum computer, right? That it can have simultaneous billions of states if ever needed, right? And whereas a conventional computer can have a billion states at any given uh, instance. So so that was a brief uh, intro into like what is a conventional computer, what is a quantum computer, how they differ from each other. Let's talk about now your question about quantum mechanics, right? Uh, So a theoretical answer to that is that the quantum mechanics is the study of particle physics. It explains the nature and behavior of atoms and subatomic particles like electrons at different energy levels, right? And that is a theoretical answer. Not everybody understands quantum mechanics that much. But let's talk about from that point of time, okay, well, what is then quantum encryption? Mm-hmm. So quantum encryption basically provides the capability to perform high speed uh, and to run parallel parallelized cryptographic tasks using quantum mechanics. So how is that even possible, right? Some question may be asked. So for example, like although other subatomic particles could theoretically also be used to explain quantum encryption. Generally, we use in the industry the uh, photons, which are the light waves uh, to implement this capability. So photons, as you know, already are used to carry large bandwidth information at high speeds within optical fiber cables. And now they can also be used to encrypt this data if needed. So basically, it uh, theoretically allows for the combination of the concepts of key exchange and PKI, like, you know, which is public key infrastructure with the security of a one-time pad while providing the capability to also quickly detect any attempt to perform a man-in-the-middle attack on the transmitted keys. So this should hopefully give you an explanation of, okay, what is quantum computing? What is quantum mechanics? What is quantum encryption? And how do they differ from the traditional conventional computer?
0: Yeah and thank you for that for that explanation I, I think that really it really you know uh explains what we're looking at in terms of how this can affect the the world of cybersecurity so I'm wondering is uh quantum computing already being used in cybersecurity either by attackers or defenders and what are the risks involved
1: so, so Gareth, before we delve into this question, I wanted to take a step back again and explain a concept called computational difficulty. So, which basically in, the, in mathematics, uh, co- computational difficulty is the concept to, di- to portray the large amount of effort or time that is generally required by a computer to solve a difficult problem. So as you know that with cryptography, all that we do is solve difficult problems. So there are two terms that we need to understand in this. One is a class P difficult problem or problem and a class NP problem. So problems that are class P are basically, you know, problems that can be solved by a polynomial function or algorithm in deterministic polynomial time. So in in other words, problems that can be solved in finite amount of time, problems that are solvable, right? So that's a class P problem. Then there is something called a class NP problem. So class NP problems are the problems that are very hard. And to solve them, you basically need non-deterministic polynomial time to solve them. Basically, or in other words, you need an infinite amount of time to solve those problems. So the conventional algorithm on a conventional computer is a class NP problem an attacker to break that algorithm, it is a class NP problem. Basically, it's very difficult for them to do it. So, you know, it is it would require them infinite amount of time to do that. But a quantum computer can actually make that problem a class P problem or a problem that can be solved in polynomial time or in finite time. So with that background, the biggest risk Right, that is there from quantum computing to cybersecurity is the theoretical capability of a quantum computer to breach traditional encryption algorithms, which used to be class NP problems, but now the quantum computer makes them class P problems. So this obviously puts all of our data at risk, data that is being transmitted, you know, in real time. Uh, Encrypted with TLS or data that has been stored in our computers and in our storage devices over the years Then you know basically the historical data at rest uh, both current and past So so I think that should give you an example of the risks now Let's talk about your, your question about you know, like is it being used by attackers or defenders? so I don't want to talk too much about the attackers yet Because we feel that, you know, quantum computing uh, is still in its infancy, you know, the biggest quantum computer we have at the moment is of like 85 or 92 qubits, right? So um, we are not at the moment sure if it is in active use yet, but from a defense perspective, you know, these cryptographers and the security professionals of the world have already started working on something called post-quantum cryptography to start, you know, thinking about how can we create quantum resistant algorithms or crypto systems, um, you know, so that we are ready for any quantum computing attacks as they occur. So uh, we have started thinking about creating uh, the certificate authorities with these new algorithms, right? Um, uh, So from a usage perspective, we all know about OpenSSL, and so a fork of OpenSSL has already been created uh, to add in prototypes for quantum-resistant key exchange and algorithm, uh, you know, uh, signature algorithms. So, uh, post-quantum key exchange algorithms like FRODOCAM or Psyc and uh, signature algorithms like Picnic and Q-Tesla are uh, also co-developed by Microsoft have already been integrated, right? And also, uh, for the record, like, you know, Flotocam, Picnic and Psyc have all, uh, have also been selected as alternate candidates or finalists in the NIST post-quantum cryptography standardization effort, uh, so I, I also recommend that you know we cybersecurity technologies start using algorithms like ECDHE, which is elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman, ephemeral and SIDH, which is super singular isogeny Diffie-Hellman algorithms, to start uh, using uh, quantum-resistant algorithms. So this should give you an idea about okay how is quantum uh, cryptography or post quantum cryptography being used today, and how are we preparing for these quantum computing attacks?
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and you know clearly it's uh, it's an emerging technology, and some of the implications of uh, what you are saying is you know terrifying and and uh, kind of uh, extremely interesting at the same time. Um, so. I'm just wondering if there are any other implications of quantum computing on the cybersecurity industry and on the role of cybersecurity professionals.
1: I think the direct implication is uh, Gareth is that you know this will raise the risk to an unprecedented level once we have strong quantum computers. So I believe that you know the threshold is going to be a quantum computer with the, about 2500 qubits. At the moment you know at the best we have about 100 qubits right so we still have a little bit of ways to go before we have you know very powerful quantum computers show up on the horizon but even a semi-powerful quantum computer can pose some risk so the IT community and the security communities worldwide have to start investing in post-quantum cryptography that like I just talked about right and I also mentioned about the NIST post-quantum cryptography standardization effort where NIST is just like it did for AES, you know, time, some time back to standardize on symmetric encryption. You know, it, it chose uh, AES, uh, you know, as the as, as one of the standards, and the AES is very, you know, uh, uh, very solid. It's still being used across the board, right? Uh, it, with this parent algorithm of Reindal. So similarly, the implication is that you know now the industry has to find equivalent quantum safe algorithms and we have some very good candidates Uh, things like lattice-based cryptography or multivariate cryptography or hash and code-based cryptography so as part of the NIST standardization effort uh, these algorithms are being looked at and uh, the industry is uh, making sure that these are standardized these are implemented and made available for the community to start using them so that, you know, when we need them in a future state, we have them readily available and we are not scrambling at the last minute.
0: Yeah, indeed. It's always good to be ahead of the game if possible. And that kind of leads me on to just thinking about what our audience should do with this, you know, for cybersecurity executives who haven't really thought about quantum computing, quantum cryptography to this point what can executives be doing today to bolster their crypto systems
1: right so gareth as you all know that you know the cyber security execs and the cybersecurity professionals are in the business of risk management right so what we try to do first is we try to remediate the risk if we can't do that then we try to mitigate the risk and if we can't do that then we try to transfer the risk So in this case we have two ways that we can go about solving this problem. One is a tactical solution and one is a strategic solution. So tactically speaking what we should do today is that we should enhance our existing cryptographic schemes. For example we should improve Diffie-Hellman and I already talked about the two algorithms that you know are considered quantum resistant. So the elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman or ECDH or the super singular isogeny Diffie-Hellman or SIDH. So we should improve Diffie-Hellman by implementing these solutions today and they are already available. We should implement them, right? So that's one thing we can do. The other thing we can do today is tactically is something called cascade ciphering, which basically means that when we encrypt our data with an algorithm, now we can actually use two algorithms in sequentially to encrypt that data. So we can actually chain encrypt the data. So we encrypted the algorithm one, Uh, and then we encrypted the encrypted data with another algorithm too, to basically create a cascade cipher. And so that makes it very difficult for a quantum computer to break that. So that's something that we can easily do now. It's all doable. It just increases a little bit of performance problems uh, and increases a a little bit of time to decrypt that data, but it's all possible. The other thing we can do tactically today is increase the key size of, of existing algorithms. For example, right, uh, you know, for AES, um, taking that in example, we can increase the data block size to 256 bits and continue to use the key size of 256, um, you know, something that we use in Rheindal, or we can even increase the key size to uh, 376 or 512. So again, if we increase the key size of existing algorithms, it becomes difficult for the quantum computer to actually break that algorithm. So that's one tactical measure we can also increase the number of rounds of existing algorithms. For example, you know, AES-128, uh, you know, we could actually increase the number of rounds to 10 or uh, AES-92, we can do 12 rounds and for 256, you know, we uh, like, you know, it has 14 rounds and we can like maybe do 28 rounds, right? So, these are some opportunities that we can do. And last but not the least, tactically, we can uh, consider using, you know, some, you uh, uh, newer uh, encryption schemes like sponge functions. So like for example, SHA-3 is based on a sponge function called Keccak. So these are the tactical measures that we can use today. right? And then we should think about the strategic problem or the strategic fix which is we have to adopt new quantum resistant cryptographic schemes. So things like I mentioned in the past, you know, like lattice-based cryptography, there is an algorithm called NTRU encrypt already, uh, you know, in progress. Uh, we already have a POC available for that. There is multivariate cryptography, you know, using hidden field equations, or, or also called HFE. Uh, we can uh, start thinking about implementing hash-based cryptography, uh, and actually, it's pretty popular and already known. It's the Merkle signature scheme. Uh, also, we have code-based cryptography like the MacLean's uh, algorithm, which has also been adopted by the NIST standardization effort. And last but not the least, we have post-quantum TLS, uh, where we use post-quantum key exchange algorithms. Uh, some uh, ones that I mentioned in the past like FrodoCam and Psyc as forks of OpenSSL. So again, to reiterate, you know, to solve this problem, we can take tactical measures today while we think about strategic implementations tomorrow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, with cryptography, so key to the ability to be able to move uh, data and store data in a secure way. What do you think the future of uh, cryptographic systems look like?
1: Well, let's talk about current state today, right, before we talk about the future. So the crypto algorithms that we have for symmetric and asymmetric encryptions today are very good and they have been standardized, right? And like I mentioned before, the future of cryptography is going to go with post-quantum cryptography, uh, with the various uh, implementations like you know, that I just mentioned in my previous statement. So I think that's uh, one aspect: is the post-quantum safe algorithms. The other, uh, you know, interesting development in the cryptography space is something called homomorphic encryption. So let me explain that a little bit more. So today, you know, the problem is with encrypted data is that you know to read encrypted data, you have to decrypt the data, right? First, so that means that you encrypt the data, you you have a key, you ship the key in some way or form to the send to the receiver, and then they have to use the key to decrypt the data. The problem is with the key management and the key storage, because if the key gets compromised then encrypted data can easily be decrypted, right? So, so that is a problem that we have to solve and homomorphic encryption is something that actually solves that problem. So with 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 this uh, algorithm or with this scheme, you could actually perform mathematical operations on encrypted data. So there is no need going forward to even decrypt the data. You can directly act upon encrypted data. And Microsoft actually has already implemented a library called SEAL, uh, which is I think uh, you know is being used uh, uh, in you know. Uh, in some of their experimental or in some of their POCs, but eventually it's going to become mainstream in the next year or two. So I think that is going to be a fantastic future with homomorphic encryption, and obviously we will also have, like I mentioned, post quantum cryptography to you know bolster our defenses against quantum computing attacks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, so just to sum up for uh, for an executive uh, for a security professional who is really Coming to this subject for the first time, where would you, if you're going to sum up your advice uh, about where to get started or how to think about these issues, what advice would you give?
1: I think that these are, you know, existential issues that have cropped up over the years, right? So if you are new to this, I recommend that you understand the problem statement here is that, you know, all of our data is at risk from quantum computing attacks. And you know, and what are the tactical measures that we can take today? And some of these are pretty straightforward and simple uh, implementations that have been experimented and very well tested. Uh, but I would also recommend that you know you read up on the post-quantum computing cryptography paradigm, and you know the efforts that are already in, underplayed by NIST and how we can think about the future state to protect ourselves from you know various attacks uh, you know that are well documented in this high threat landscape.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so so key, and that's really great advice for people getting started in this area. That's about all the time that we have, so I'd like to say thank you very much for joining me today, Raj. And for our listeners, uh, of course, a really good place to start is by reading Raj's book on the subject, which is available now from Amazon, as well as uh, his other cybersecurity book, The CISO's Transformation, Security Leadership in a High-Threat Landscape. So please do go and have a look at those and for me, I'd like to say thank you to you, Raj, for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Garrett. I was uh, happy to be here and we had a good conversation. I look forward to come back and talk to you again soon.
0: We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Business of InfoSec podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're currently listening to make sure you get our latest episodes. Plus, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider leaving us a review. As always, you can find us and engage with us on social media as well as on the Business of Infosec website where you can find this podcast as well as other topical articles, reports and videos. So, until next time, take care.